0: Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle and you're listening to A Private View. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about the people who buy and sell art, whether it's art, acquisitions and investing, what a collector needs to know when they're buying things, how art became an asset class, uh, what the Royal Opera House is doing at Christie's, what a dealer does, what a dealer did, and the history of promoting supporting talking about and representing artists this all started on the weekend when I ran into the Saatchi legacy Uh, Phoebe Saatchi and Arthur Yates have opened a gallery on Cork Street and it was an incredible experience to walk into the second generation of art dealers and to see how they stand out from other galleries in the way they treat people, how you feel when you walk in, and how they make the artist feel. There is something incredibly contemporary about the way they run their business in that the painter has iPads, augmented reality, so that he appeals to an audience of a younger generation who I've been told use their iPads and devices as a type of pacifier. With the old school care, consideration, sincerity, commitment, patience with people, and patience with artists, of dealers of days gone by, pre-internet dealers, Uh, they were negotiating every day, Sunday included, up, dressed, ready to go and meet people talking about art all day to strangers, working the floor, and it was quite something to see in a world where the Instagram artist has cut out a lot of dealers and the need for dealers. We talk now about art investment services, acquisition financing, art funds, guarantees, guarantors, auctions, and here we have two young people in their 20s, setting up a gallery in a traditional way with contemporary means. So what is the role of the art dealer? Uh, If you take it back to the days of Leo Castelli and Betty Parsons, the role of the art dealer would be to start the day by making myths. You make myths about what you think, is aesthetically superior to other myths that other people are making about artists and that's how the system used to perpetuate itself there would be gatekeepers the gatekeepers were the dealers and they would decide who's good who gets what well instagram Uh, And social media and computers has changed all that. But for a moment, I'm gonna go back and talk about, traditionally, what art dealers did. In a quote from Leo Costelli, who is everybody's favorite dealer, and certainly the one that uh, Phoebe Saatchi and Arthur Yates cited as someone they wanted to be like, someone who's known for having a patience with artists, who doesn't screw people around, What Leo said, and it became harder and harder in an age of rapid obsolescence. This was when he was talking that his responsibility is the myth-making of myth material. And when handled properly and imaginatively, the job of the dealer is to go at it completely you have to build up the myth, and that's what Leo Castelli believed his his worth was to the artist, someone who is an incredible storyteller. I want to stay focused on Castelli's surprising, honest acknowledgement of the gallerist's role as a storyteller. His message is essentially that the only real value in a piece of art lives entirely in our heads, the work is only worth what buyers and sellers voluntarily agree it's worth. And aside from psychological like hobgoblins of scarcity and competition among collectors, the core factor motivating the price is consensus about the narrative wrapped around the work. It's like a golden fleece. So when people have velvet tongues. Those were the people who used to run the art world. And it was remarkable to see Sachi Yates and Arthur Yates pick up there with everything that was contemporary, including the iPad that you held in front of the painting, going back to the past and getting that marriage happening bringing it together in something that actually was a genuine experience especially during COVID. one of the legendary dealers aside from leo castelli is betty parsons and betty parsons was born in 1900 in new york and you can still find youtube interviews with her she was incredible she studied sculpture in paris and uh, Was an artist in her own right. I think Alison Jocks had a gallery with her earlier this year. She opened the Betty Parsons Gallery in 1946, and she showed the early work of the abstract expressionists. Clearly respected and known for her commitment to artists, and also the fact that she devoted her whole life to bridging the gap between the artist's studio practice and the collector and giving the collector a story to tell that helped them understand the work. She would have been friends with or would have known Peggy Guggenheim, who was around at the time, Costelli, and all the other people in New York post-war when it was vibrant and the Abstract expressionists were running the art scene. I mean, until the 50s and 60s, they were still considered the kingpins. Uh, Andy Warhol spent a lot of his time bumping up against them. And there's a great story about an art dealer named Ivan Karp, who did a studio visit. Ivan Karp worked for Leo Castelli for about 10 years. And eventually they went their own way. And it had to do with an artist, I think it was Dan Flavin, that Leo took on, and Ivan Karp didn't want him to, and they fell out, and Ivan Karp opened his own space. Moving right along, Ivan did a studio visit with Andy Warhol, and he said he was a very peculiar man with a skin condition, but he'd come to the gallery to buy some Jasper Johns. At the time, I think it was Leo Castelli's gallery. Ivan was interested in him, even though he was quite odd. I think he picked up the Jasper Johns for a few hundred pounds and he went to andy warhol's studio with castelli castelli found the loud music the people around warhol his he was wearing a mask at the time not a covid mask but a dress up mask offered leo castelli a mask leo didn't like any of this and didn't enjoy warhol carp did and when they separated castelli and carp uh, he did a, inter- a studio visit again with Andy Warhol, and Andy Warhol had soup cans, of which, by the way, on the first visit, although Leo Castelli didn't like Warhol, didn't want to represent him, he did buy one of his soup cans. I think it was something like 35 pounds at at the time. But what Warhol was doing, and this is how big the abstract expressionists were, is he was leaving drips on his... Campbell soup can. And Carp was like, what are you doing? And he's like, Warhol replied, the abstract expressionists are just so incredible. I can't not acknowledge them. I'm not them. But I have to say that they've changed the art world. And Carp's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But now take it out. You're doing something different. What you're doing is clean lines, pop art, manufacturing. Uh, and, and really dealers in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s were helping the artist create the next body of work. We've heard a lot about Charles Saatchi and Damien Hirst and Saatchi helping Damien make decisions. Uh, clearly, they're still friends because when Damien opened his retrospective at Newport Street Gallery, this month Charles was the first person to go and see it and in the spirit of his daughter Phoebe opening the gallery we're talking about dealers and I'm telling you a little bit about Betty Parsons I'm just going to read something that she wrote about her favorite clients and the people she liked to work with and the myths she liked to tell she said her favorite clients have always been the ones who collected art out of love, just as children collect postage stamps, they fall in love with things that delight them, that they can't resist. One of the most marvelous collectors was a guy named Duncan Phillips of Phillips Gallery in Washington, and there was such an intensity about the way he'd study the paintings and attention he gave to each work that his curiosity for art was inexhaustible. And this is true for great musicians too. You challenge yourself to look at work that you don't like as well as you like because you're studying, you're developing your eye, you're trying to read the language and you keep an enthusiasm for all artists and all work, not just stuff that you want. You don't shut out the rest of the world. And that's where the tolerance and the patience comes into it and the time Then Betty Parsons goes on to say, then there's the collector who comes in and wants art for investment or wants art to put over their sofa or those who buy it for a certain status, for some vague goal of attaining uh, a social position that's higher than the one they have. And we know a lot about this. Certainly when I mention Hearst, there was a house in Notting Hill that didn't have the spots in it. And I've been told the same is true with Eaton Square. People get art now absolutely to elevate their social status. They call it a luxury item. In Betty Parsons' time, they were hearing more and more about art as an investment, art as a store of value, art as something to come to the rescue in debt, divorce and death or disaster hit, and you had to go to Christie's, Sotheby's, or now Phillips, and auction off your art collection. Art and real estate are the two things that have paid off most handsomely when tragedy strikes. Uh, They hold their value, and they'll keep going. And when you buy from a great gallerist or gallery, whether it's Leo Castelli, Sidney Janis, Ivan Karp, Peggy Guggenheim, Betty Parsons, and I hope Saatchi Yates, you'll know that you're buying work that holds its value. Uh, The dealer is meant to be the arbiter of truth, really, of truth about what they'll guarantee in the art world and what they ask you to agree with them on. And they ask you to agree with it by paying great sums of money for works of art by artists that they've nurtured and seen from art school into mid-career and sometimes old age. The best situation is when a dealer and an artist grow together. And I hope that happens with Pascal Center and Sachi Yates, who I have been talking about a lot because it is true that they've inspired this particular podcast about dealers and what dealers do. It's been a long time since I've walked in a gallery and people get up from behind their computer to greet you uh, unless you've booked an appointment and are there to see something some people say if only the political world could be a little bit more creative and you could see that artists have to contribute to society and uh, well you know buying and selling all of that it's only the end of, of a process of something else of permitting things to happen of permitting people to come into your life of artists to come into your life of permitting your mind to open and look at what they're doing um and what they're creating, and what the paintings are, what the sculpture is. And if there's anything valuable about it in a true sense for you, do you ever wake up and think about it at night? Uh, for the art dealer, discovering a young artist and giving him his first show is the most exciting thing in the world. Uh, when out of nowhere you find an artist and you think, yeah, I can, I can deliver a tremendous wallop and affect and impact the art world with this guy. There's an artist. There's an audience. I mean, this guy, this girl, there's a there's an audience for this. That's a great thing and there's no bigger thrill than having your first exhibition with a brand new artist and it selling out. And I think to repeat again, that's what I saw on the weekend at this brand new gallery with two new people and an emerging artist. I saw this relationship of the three of them coming up together and all putting themselves on the line and saying, yeah, we can find an, art, an audience for that. So although it was incredibly contemporary, it was also building on history. I'm gonna talk about a couple of other dealers that are people to watch that kind of bridge the gap between the past and what we're going through now. In the words of Leo Castelli, there are certain moments in the evolution of art when it seems it's not enough to create in the spirit of a previous generation. There's a feeling that new ideas must appear and perhaps great contradictions occur. A dealer, an art dealer, must be able to pinpoint these moments when they occur and to identify which artist embodies the new ideas. When Leo Castelli opened his gallery, he felt it was one of those moments. And, and when he came upon this group of artists, Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, each of them in their own way representing a quantum leap into something new, he knew his life's work was cut out for him. And he continued to be the greatest proponent of, of those artists and, and changed the way we remember art history. In fact, he wrote. Art history, based on his relationship with the Abstract Expressionists. Leo Castelli's wife was Ileana Sonnabend, and people will always tell you that she was the one who understood the art world. Uh, they went their separate ways, uh, but they remained friends and talked to each other every day. So amicable, uh, you know. The fire went out. What can you What can you do? Uh, but he stayed in New York, and I think she went to Europe, perhaps Paris. For a long time, no gallery in Europe bothered to show American art. It wasn't considered at all important. So Castelli asked his former wife, Ileana Sonnabend, who opened her Paris gallery in 1962, if uh, she could show the work of Rauschenberg and John's. M- many other of his artists who weren't seen in France though so he would have started that idea of globalization about it wasn't really enough to be famous in one country that you needed to be famous internationally to have a place in the history books in the art history books and then in 1964 Castelli's artist Robert Rauschenberg won the Venice Biennale uh, that was the first time official recognition was given to an American artist in an international format, forum. It was unprecedented. So the gatekeepers, until Castelli, kept the art world in Europe. They they wouldn't let the Americans in. And after the war, with the help of Castelli, American voices began to be heard on the art scene. We can see that happening now diversity issues and gender issues shaking the bars of the gates that keep them out of the art world and demanding to be seen Uh, and you do look back at history that's why i know people are bored with the past and they don't want to talk about it and it seems heavy but unless you understand the past it is my opinion that it's hard to move forward in the future because there's a lot of answers in art history that show you the way forward and it may not be exactly the same way, but it starts you on the journey and then things happen the way they're meant to in the right time. Whether it's American or European or Shanghai uh, or the internet, the one thing I can guarantee you is that the art world is very small. On another level, the work can be sanctioned in different ways. Leo Castelli has always been the pioneer in in this by allowing other galleries everywhere to show his artist. He had shared experiences, which really is a different kind of philanthropy. It means he it could mean he genuinely wanted what was best for the artist and didn't think about himself, which is a riddle in a sense because he is the most famous and most memorable artist or er, dealer who, who is never screwed anyone over and yet he also created the best artists so there's that there's that funny thing if you don't want to let go of control because you think you'll lose out but if you don't let go of control your artists can't flourish and he had an elegance to balance that uh, I I've heard and I've read that it wasn't pleasant for him at the end, that there were vultures coming in when he was older who wanted to scoop up his artists. But what we know is his contribution to the contemporary art world is more important than any of us could ever ever imagine. He shepherded in Larry and Mary Boone, and a new movement of art with artists that he represented at the time who are still showing today Uh, James Rosenquist was one of them Mimi was here last year Mimi Rosenquist Mimi Thompson talking about the estate and uh, dealers without without dealers artists wouldn't exist without artists dealers wouldn't exist so that relationship has to be close intimate and very very fluid Recently, we were working with uh, Fee Lovett at Maddox Gallery and uh, someone in the marketing department or a social media manager asked her what were the most important questions for a collector to ask a gallerist. It's a strange kind of question, uh, but it it came through marketing and PR, so that's not unusual. They they kind of have a, a, f- a formula that they put in place, which is oftentimes without intuition, sensitivity, patience, all the things that a dealer has. It's a formula. It's a statistician. However, we are moving forward and we're embracing all of it. Uh, So the questions that came back from Fee Lovett said, if a client is interested in a particular artist, the sort of questions they may ask are, is the artist formally trained or self-taught? If formally trained where? Because you also buy into the Goldsmith School of Thought, the St. Martin's School of Thought, the Parsons School of Thought, uh, the Nazcat School of Thought, the Emily Carr School of Thought, the Slade School of Thought. You get my drift. Uh, Another question may be how long the artist has been painting and what sort of age they are. So will this artist's work mature? Are they just working out their primary ideas. Early on the show, we spoke about artists who get famous right out of art school and how difficult it is for them to evolve, because if they're famous for a style that they introduce into their their audience, to their collector base when they're in their 20s, how do they grow? How do they not box themselves into a corner let's say without and and feel quite stifled creatively how do they take their collector with them on that journey that's a great dealer who helps explain that process and arranges studio visits for collectors and make sure they're involved in the process another question maybe with an emerging artist they may want to know what mixed exhibitions they've been in people may say i mean this artist i haven't shown seen before. Oh, he was in a show with Tracy Yaman, or oh, they were in a show with Connor Harrington, and they get a sense of who their peer group is. Now, historically, the peer groups might be Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, Mark Rothko, so they can see the artists move in groups together. So you're known by the circles you keep applies. Awareness drives demand, and demand drives prices. So these questions, someone putting 50 grand on a piece of artwork will want to know. Uh, Where does the artist's inspiration come from? Uh, When a client engages with the artist's journey, it helps them understand the work. Is it identity issues, race issues? Is it just color theory? Are we dealing with pure cerebral issues around color and form and shape, or is there a narrative that's going through it associated politics and social reform and community? The Banksy market is exploding because, to a certain extent, the world is in crisis and Banksy is like a sloganeer for social politics. People cannot get enough of this artist because he reflects their voice. Uh, The next thing a client would want to know is maybe, does the artist have a celebrity following? So what that means, and we all laugh at the word celebrity, is are are the works by this artist in notable collections? Because if someone who you respect... um, For instance, the Rubels or Peggy Guggenheim collects this work. It's a good sign that you're on to something good because you respect their taste. Uh, Another thing would be the medium. Although I'd say if you're in front of the work, you have a sense that it's a painting, not a print or a drawing or a sculpture. But is it oil or acrylic or are they using animal products? I mean, these are more nuanced questions, and they may have to do with the climate the collector lives in. You don't want to put things in strong sunlight or maybe cold conditions, and that's what they're asking. How should they frame it? Should be UV-protected glass? Those are the sort of things a great dealer can help you with. You know, I've never really told you about myself in a long way, in long historical way. And I realized i've opened galleries and worked in galleries, and I've never told my story so as a as a sort of beginning to it all i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a little bit now um, as you know galleries are information centers, and the best galleries in the world are really contemporary museums they the difference is they're self funded uh visitors occasionally and you'll find this if you work in a gallery will call and ask if there's an admission charge to go to a gallery they can't believe the quality of work is is free to see one of the beauties of living in mayfair is that all the best galleries in the world are there and you can walk in and see of course it's a bit different now because of the COVID crisis, you just book in advance, but it's such an incredible thing. Now, as someone who's running a gallery, it's also a massive commitment. Uh, we were talking about Hearst's privately funded museum with his own collection, where nothing is for sale. And you think that is someone believing in our common cultural future financing and funding that and a lot of gallerists do the same. How do I know that? How do I know that they're not really the stereotype of someone who's like, cheating and doing unscrupulous things to all the artists? Because they're not all that way. I mean, it gets called out very quickly. In fact, there was a recent calling out about something that's happening next month. Uh, artists will always find a way of talking about anyone who cheats them. So you'll know in advance. So back to what I did and do. Uh, I had started with my first gallery job at the Hayward Gallery many moons ago. And then I moved to Vancouver to finish a degree at Emily Carr. It's now a university of art, but at the time it was an art school, and you would augment your career, your BFA uh, at the University of British Columbia. While I was there, I knew, because I went back a little bit older, I'd been to a million galleries. I'd been to Ontario College of Art, uh, Chelsea, um, St. Martin's and didn't stay anywhere. I had different urges at the time and I needed to get out and see things. Um, When I started going to art school, I knew that it wasn't enough. And this story came back to me when I was at the Hearst show because what he did as a student was very clever. He worked alongside Anthony Dioffay on Cork Street So he never let himself become so isolated from the conversation of the art world and art market that his studio practice was not in touch with what was going on. He was also meeting and networking and watching the business of art move. I started working at Diane Farris Gallery. Uh, She was the first person to introduce me to Dale Chihuly. Years later I saw Chihuly's work. He had a patch over his eye, worked in Seattle, blew glass into sculpture, incredibly beautiful work. Uh thirty years later, twenty years later, I see his work at the VNA at Halcyon Gallery. And I wonder about those moments with people like Diane Ferris, who who works now online, um and I think you know, she really did move things forward for an artist like Dale Chihuly. And you've got to applaud her for that. And then I started, I didn't really work, I did for a minute, a minute, but I started hanging out a lot at Monte Clark Gallery and helping almost like a, an apprenticeship, but it was a friendship apprenticeship. And there was no money being made. But as, as a lot of people at the time, you weren't always chasing money, you were trying to chase interesting stories and ways of life and Monty Clark was a young dealer who opened up in Gastown in Vancouver and he was showing Attila Richard Lucas uh, Stephen Waddell, Stephen Shearer he was also, Jeffrey Farmer was in and out, he was also in touch with the Roy Arden's, the Jeff Walls, the uh, Stan Douglas the Rodney Grahams so Being in the gallery, in fact, taught me as much, if not more, than what I was learning in art school. I needed to kind of think about what I was going to do, because to that point, I'd been making art, and I realized I was really missing gallery life, and that was really what I was happiest doing, which was talking about art, uh, dealing with people, trying to help people understand what artists were doing, how to add them to... To their collection. And I worried, because remember, this was pre computer days, pre internet days, that the range of people I would have exposure to as an artist would be too narrow. Um, I would only meet the dealer and maybe a couple of collectors. Whereas, as someone working in a gallery or owning a gallery or having a stable of artists, I'd be exposed to everyone. Uh, and finally, I did my grad show, but after that, I sort of haven't touched the making of art anymore and devoted myself to gallery practices. I had a similar experience that I had with Monty Clark with Patrick Painter. He's a Los Angeles gallerist who uh, had a place in Vancouver, and I was an art advisor. Well, the lines are always quite blurred with Patrick, but the learning curve... Of working and being around and having information told through narratives and storytellers about the art world and artist processes introduced me to Jim Shaw, Mike Kelly. I mean, in fact, introduced me to them. You got to meet them if you were hanging out with Patrick because... If you know him, you'll understand what I mean, is he only went to bed on Friday and maybe Monday, and he was up the rest of the time, and everyone was around. Uh, Patrick would help me when I opened my gallery in London. He continues to be a friend, and I just recently wrote an interview for uh, Justin Bauer, and it was Patrick who I spoke to first to get a sense of what... What Justin Bauer was doing, uh, Patrick was very generous with his thoughts and ideas and his intuition and intelligence about the art world because he had the same gifts given to him. I believe it was Castelli who he talked to, uh, but I may be confusing that with some myth around Larry Gagosian. But this shared sense of people telling each other stories and absorbing by being around interesting people... Uh, was where my my focus was. Uh, I opened my first gallery in London with financing I had through a client that I'd been collecting for, a London client that I'd been collecting for, uh, advising. They were collecting through Golkowskin. And this happens with a lot of gallerists. Uh, I'd helped this person purchase a lots of work, and anything they were going to buy, they'd send to me. Eventually, he decided, I think it was a bit of a love story for his architect boyfriend, who wasn't moving up fast enough in the company, and he wanted him to design a gallery, to open a gallery that I would run. It was not even, I didn't even consider moving country, I didn't even consider not moving countries or giving up anything. It was in a second, I was in London And we were opening a space on Ledbury Road. Now, I'll backtrack. We had gone around the world, Cape Town, Switzerland, Germany, and looked for spaces. Uh, But London was the place to be. And his boyfriend did design it, well, sort of designed it, at 30 Ledbury Road. And that opened my world to collectors, critics, auction house experts. So many of the people I met in those few years at Doyle Devere on Ledbury Road are still part of uh, the people that are in my life. It was a really important time. And I guess that's the thing that gallerists do is they forge relationships. Uh, They pay their artists and they forge relationships. That's... Well, I won't drop all the names, but that's where the best relationships were made. And in fact, when that gallery dissolved, because uh, my financer wasn't really finding uh, the love that he needed to find in that business, and he moved back to South Africa, I had already developed a relationship with uh, Bankropper Gallery. We'd been trading art and sharing artists and selling things, and I could leave Doyle de Vere and walk straight into selling Banksy Walls and selling Russell Young and, and that's almost the way the art world works. For me the gallery, the gallerist, the art dealer, the, the different names that mute and, and change and blend together is an information center. Uh, the best galleries in the world are really contemporary museums only they're self-funded. Some of the visitors, as I said earlier, call and ask if there's an admission charge when there's a show like Cause at Scarstead or the Conner Brothers at Maddox or Banksy shows. Uh, you know, when I went to work for Monty Clark at art school back in the 90s, I had no idea I'd end up a dealer myself. Things have changed since then, and the market's changed, and I don't have Doyle Dever anymore, but I'm still in this art world, uh, working advising, uh, artistic director at Maddox. Um, the job as an art dealer was consuming my life. At the time, I was still working in the studio and coming up with creative ideas, I needed to decide back in the 90s whether I wanted to be an artist or a dealer and within months uh, I knew it was the gallery bridging the gap between the artist and and the art world really. Uh, The life of the artist at the time was quite solitary and his dealings were mostly with the gallery whereas the gallerist would know a wide range of collectors and a wide range of people. And that idea of being a public person really appealed to me. It was the dealer who had both the art world and the outside world to deal with. Um, It was a perfect fit for me. Since then, I've curated shows. I've been a broadcaster. I was at the helm of Mayfair's infamous bank robber gallery. We sold slave labor, the wall, controversial. Go with balloon, the wall. Uh, I have the podcast A Private View, which is incredibly rich and gives me that contact with artists and collectors that I crave, that I've craved since I was an art student. I've had uninterrupted time, but I've also allowed artists uninterrupted time, and that's what a good gallery does. They give artists uninterrupted time to do their work and, and pursue a studio practice, because the gallery pays the bills, books the press, uh, takes care of the shipping, the hanging, the selling. Uh, I'm in the gallery now, that's why you can hear buzzers going off. There's always something going on, and having a gallery saves the artist from the interruption between a breakthrough moment and getting the door to let a delivery guy in. Ah. Uh, there's so much I could tell you, but I think my my uh, biggest message in this time of a global pandemic is be kind to galleries as well as artists. Uh, the galleries sometimes get a bad rap, and I wonder what the world would be like if there was just Instagram and just virtual viewing rooms and digital platforms and and no open and public spaces for us to look at art. Uh, I live in Mayfair, I curate study programs, uh, I suggest reading material, I take strangers to galleries and talk to experts in the area and I can't imagine my life without the art world I I know I made the right decision but I am interested in shaping the perception of art dealers and gallerists in the same way they shape the perception of artists so think for a minute of what it's like to pay the rent the rates the staff yeah and 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 appreciate the galleries. When I think about art dealers, I think about the people who traditionally take the responsibilities of paying bills, logistics, moving art around, doing forms, filling in papers, uh, insurance policies, framing needs, travel costs, conservation issues, Things about UV lighting, the dealer, the art dealer, the gallerist, takes all of that off of the artist. They unburden them. When there's things like a pandemic, such as what we're dealing with now, an art dealer, a traditional art dealer, will then become the patron of the artist. They'll regularly buy works of the artist during a time of... Uh, slow sales, let's say, and they'll make sure that artist always has an income. It's called a stipend in a sense. Sometimes the stipend is painting, sometimes the stipend's cash. You never quite know. But art dealers really do everything they can to alleviate the artist of the burden of anything other than focusing on creativity they create this insular world where the artist has one thing to do and that's to go to the studio and practice in the studio. Traditionally, the best dealers have grown with the artist. Uh, They grow age-wise, they all start young and they grow age-wise with the artist. It's It's a relationship that's based on trust, a common narrative, a common direction. And also traditionally, and now it happens online, They bring their friends with them. Uh, Castelli was famous for that. Castelli was famous for having artists and all their friends at his gallery, and it creates a nice stream of consciousness. Uh, My own experience in the art world has been uh, in and out of other galleries. Um, Some dealers are better with artists, other dealers are better with collectors. Uh, But when you're looking for a dealer, particularly now when we have social media, uh, which can do a lot of your audience building, you have to realize that the negotiation with a dealer is to find out actually what they can do for you. Can they get your work into museums? Can they create an audience for you that you don't have? Are you now included in the Venice Biennale? Can they make sure your work goes through the auction system? They're the, the hard questions to answer, but looking for a gallery just because you think a gallery, you need a gallery, isn't enough anymore. Most most artists should be creating an audience and a following and a collector base on their own through social media and art fairs before they go looking for a gallery, so that there's a level of equality when they meet. Or Taddeus Ropek or it's Sadie Coles or a David Zorner or a Massimo DiCarlo, you go to the dealer with something and then you start to negotiate how they can better enable you to take your position in art history. Uh, This is the podcast on art dealers. If you liked it, please subscribe. Uh, Thank you, Koresh and Homi, for producing and Soho Radio for making everything possible.